Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. James Altucher, and I'm here once again at the James Altucher Show. Uh, today, we're going to have a guest, Lewis Howes, but first, I am joined by my excellent co-host, Aaron Brabham. Aaron, how's it going today? Man, it's fantastic, James. I am sitting in sunny Orlando. It's uh, a high of 80 degrees today, not a cloud in the sky, but yet I'm in a little dungeon doing the podcast, but there's nothing I'd rather be doing than talking to you, my friend. Excellent. Well, Except you, you kind of maybe a little bit wanted to make me feel jealous about the whole Orlando thing because well, I'm, I'm, uh, it's snowing here right now while we're doing this. Yeah, but you don't even care. Like you don't even leave the compound, right? I I don't leave at all. Although I'm going down to Miami in about a, I think in about two weeks to Actually, speak at the, your show. That's right. I'll see you there, and it's called the Stansberry Society. Uh, it's it's unlike any conference that's ever been put together before. I'm very excited about. It's going to have some fantastic speakers. It's going to be a lot of investment stuff, but also uh, a, t- a ton of like life hacking things. We're going to have our own version of uh, Shark Tank, Stansberry Tank, where you, Porter, and Matt Smith are going to to have the opportunity to throw a little bit of capital to some uh, entrepreneurial people. I think people will really enjoy it. Yeah, I'm excited. It sounds like a lot of fun. All right, James, so what are you burning on uh, today? Is there anything that you've read or anything that you're tracking or any blog posts that you've written lately that are really um, kind of taking over your mind or maybe the book you just finished up? Well, you know, it's interesting. So uh, we obviously we interviewed Lewis Howes, uh, who's coming up in a few seconds, and it, it really got me to thinking about the issue of mastery and passion. Everybody always says, oh, I've got to find my passion in life. You know, when everybody thinks they're sort of entitled to this passion, that somehow it's just waiting for them out there. And if they just sort of stumble into it, uh, life is going to be great after that. But you see after, uh, you know, talking to someone like Lewis, he all his life wanted to be an athlete and not just not just like a high school athlete or have fun with his friends. He wanted to be an Olympic level athlete. He wanted to be a professional NFL player. He wanted to reach the highest levels in whatever sport he was playing. And so many times he got distracted by injuries, other issues in his life. And finally, it was injury that really, you know, forced him, you know, to change goals completely. He was he was on his sister's couch, broke, trying to figure out what to do with his life. He couldn't be a professional athlete, you know, when he has spent his entire life doing that. And you'll see him describe, you know, what else he had been doing at that point, which was almost nothing. Uh, And then how he 
was able to take his passions and other aspects of his life and transform them into a career where suddenly he was making millions a year. And this podcast is never about making millions a year, although that's a nice side effect. But it's about how you kind of deal with this choose-yourself society and lifestyle that we've been thrust in because of the changes in the economy, because of the changes in technology that have afforded all these opportunities, um, because of uh, you know various things happening in the job situation. You know, it's a very difficult life. This choose-yourself life. You have to be able to learn how to how to pivot, how to how to change on a dime, how to know how to come up with ideas, how to be healthy and have the energy to pursue your dreams. And I think Lewis really emulates that very well. And I, I was really happy that he agreed to be a guest on the show, and he had such a powerful message. Yeah, I um, I wasn't familiar with him, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview. And I especially like how he kind of, um, as you said, pivoted and recreated himself to become a multimillionaire, but by doing the thing that he loves to do now. And in a way, it's still competitive. So let's not uh, have your listeners wait any longer. Let's go straight to the interview with Lewis Howes. This is the James Altucher Show, and we're with a special guest, my good friend, Lewis Howes. Lewis is known for... Uh, Lewis is known for a lot of things. I'm going to tell just some of them. But basically, he makes seven figures a year or more using just LinkedIn. And he's going to talk about that. Lewis is also a former professional athlete, semi-professional athlete, super college athlete. I don't know if you were like a failed athlete and now you're a professional athlete again. <laughs> you're every kind of athlete. And you're also uh, working on a, a book, you know, in the early stages of book planning. So perhaps we'll talk about that. But, uh, Lewis, let's start off. What the hell are you? Are you an athlete or not? Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a human being. <laughs> I like to. All I right. Like to... I like that. No, la unlabeled. We had Mark <laughs> Echo on the podcast as well. Exactly. Unlabeled. I, uh, you know, what I'm passionate about, though, is uh, I'm passionate about being inspired and inspiring others. And the way I like to do that currently is through uh, athletics and through my kind of entrepreneurial pursuits, but um, and also performing in any type of form. So whether it's speaking or, you know, creating a, a webinar or podcasting or any way I can kind of perform and inspire others to be to be the greater uh the greatest selves. That's what I like to do. And, you know, Lewis, we're going to talk about, I, I know there was a point in your uh, past where you hit a real low point, And from there you built a real solid business again, you know, making over a million a year using LinkedIn. And we're going to talk about how to do that because I think a lot of the audience, uh, you know, we're, we're work, working through this period of reinvention in society where people have mm -hmm. to decide, am I going to work in a cubicle? I'm going to work in the corporate office or am I going to build my own business and reinvent myself? But before that, I, I do want to get into the athletic stuff. Like what what are you doing now as an athlete and what did you do? Just describe sure. kind of your, your past. Sure. Yeah, I'll start from the beginning where, you know, my entire dream as a kid, I used to watch football and basketball on TV with my dad. And, and I used to watch the Olympics uh, every four years with my dad. And he would always talk about the guys on the field or on the court who were the All-Americans. And they were always getting the most praise and they were the best. 
and uh, he would always talk about them, these Division One college athletes who were about to go play professional sports, and that's what I wanted to be. That's the, what my dad would talk about is those guys and what they were able to create and the legendary games they had, moves, plays they created, and I was like, man, that's what I want to do when I grow up. I just want to do awesome stuff that inspires people and, and perform at high levels as an athlete. So it was always my dream to be two things, an All-American athlete and go to the Olympics just because I was so moved when I would watch the Olympics. I was just like, I would cry when I watched the Olympics growing up as a kid, but the stories, the hardships that all these athletes went through to get to where they are for that one moment, that one opportunity where the entire world was watching them and then they either you know triumph or they fail. And, uh, and that's part of their story then. And I just was like, man, I want to have that feeling. So my entire childhood, I, I was, you know, pursuing to be an all American and to get a, a college scholarship. And I was all state in like three sports in high school. So I was kind of on track. I played football, basketball, track, baseball, and I was, you know, all everything, but going from high school, I was at a small school, so it wasn't really a big deal, but going to the college university level where it's like grown men you're playing against, not boys anymore. It's a whole nother game. And, and so also from college to pro, it's like the next level. It's just so much faster, bigger, stronger. So going to college, I was like, I really want to be an all American athlete. And my sophomore year, I had one of the most unbelievable years, you know, a career as a football player. I, I was the second in the nation in receiving yards and probably, Whoa, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I was like leading the second leading receiving yards. Uh, Who was the first? Tim, how come we uh, oh, didn't yeah. get the first guy on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, I don't know who the first was, but uh, I was like, you know, I had like 100 catches and like 1,400 yards or something crazy like that, like 20 touchdowns. I had a lot. It was a That's lot great. of stats. And I didn't make All-American, and I was frustrated because my team, we, all, we were only – and I broke a world record that year for the most receiving yards in a single football game. So I was How like, could you not make All-American? Like, what, exactly. what do they use to judge that other than a world record? Exactly. You're the best in the world. Exactly. Oh, he's not All-American, though. He, he's All-World, but not All-American. Well, what they usually base it off of is the players on the best teams. So my, my team that year, we were like – We'd won five games and lost five or six. So we were kind of like an average team. And they really picked the guys who are, you know, undefeated teams or lose like one or two games and have amazing stats on those teams or the ones that make the playoffs, things like that. And we didn't do that. So it was kind of hard coming from a small school that was kind of under the radar. It didn't matter. If I would have gotten, you know, double the stats, then maybe I would have made it. But I guess it wasn't good enough for, for the judges or whoever was making that. So I remember going in my senior year and I, I broke three ribs going to my senior year playing football in the second game of the season. And that was my last opportunity to be an all American. So I just said to myself, you know what? My dream's not over. I'm a pretty good track athlete. I've done a couple events pretty good. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to dedicate the next six of my life, six months of my life to learning how to be a decathlete. And the decathlon and track and field, for those who don't know, is 10 events. It's, it's a one-event sport, uh, but it's 10 events is the one event. So you've got two days that you do these 10 events. And the first day is the 100, the high jump, the long jump, the shot put, and the 400-meter dash. And then you go into the next day with heavy legs, with the uh, 110 high hurdles, um, discus, pole vault, javelin, and then the 1500. And... Um, so I didn't know how to do about four of those events. So I had to learn 
you know, the running stuff I could do just as an athlete, but the other events I had to really learn the technique. So I spent six months dedicated every morning, getting up early, training with my coach, staying after practice and doing a lot of visualization technique, a lot of strategy and a lot of work for the next six months. And uh, I got all the way to the national championship. So I qualified in the top 16 in the country as a decathlete, but they only take eight members. So luckily, as a decathlete, you, it's up to you if you're going to go or not. You have to beat the competition. There's no like judging because it's all based on heights and scores and everything else like that. So it's all based on how you perform. It's not like, oh, I had a 1,000 yards more than this person, but I'm still not All-American. All so I really liked that. It was all based on your scores. And, um, but you had these cracked ribs, though. Like, How did you get yeah, yeah. over that? Like, well, isn't I, that gonna, if well, I had three cracked ribs, I probably could do maybe eight of the events, but not all ten. It was a challenge, man. It was definitely a challenge. I, I, you know, those months were, I healed over those months a lot. It was still, you know, a little tweaky and this and that. And it was, it was a challenge because there was a big divot in my ribs, but I had a really nice healing and I healed very fast to the point where I could at least train. And, uh, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't getting impact. It wasn't like someone was hitting me in the ribs every day. So it was a different type of pain. And, uh, luckily I just really took care of my body. I didn't have any shook no sugar for six months. Like I ate clean. I was healthy. All I did was eat right, sleep right, and train right for six months. I was like one track mind. Yeah, I didn't hang out with girls. I didn't do anything. I was just like focused. And um, because you're gay, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing wrong with that though. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, so I uh, yeah, I go into the national championship, super pumped that I made the national championship, and realizing that. I'm going to have to really have some PRs, some best qualifications for these events. And it came down to the pole vault. So it's kind of like, a, I'll try to make this long story short, but the pole vault came down to this. I, had, I was about 10th place going into the pole vault. It was the second day, third event of the second day. And I missed the, t there's an opening height that I went for, which is probably like 11 feet. And it was pretty easy for me to always get in practice. So I started at this. I you get three attempts for each height. Um, for the pole vault and I missed the first two attempts so if I missed the next and final attempt that would give me zero points on that event and there would be no chance of being an all-american uh. and and so I my whole life comes down to this one moment of giving me the opportunity to finish out to see if I'm going to be an all-american and I go up for this final moment so in the zone and focused than I've ever been before and uh, luckily, uh, I clear it with ease and uh, give myself an opportunity to continue on with it. I actually have a PR in that event. I had uh, over 14 and a half feet uh, that day on the pole vault. And then wow. the, next, the next two events, I did about as good as I could do for each one. And I made eighth place by a couple of points. So I made All-American as an athlete, as a track athlete, you know, within six months of trying the decathlon. And then um, I decided, you know what? I still got another year of eligibility because I redshirted my senior year when I broke these ribs in football. So I went back and played football my, my fifth year and uh, made All-American again as a football. So I did two sports All-American. And then I had a decision. Do I want to go to the Olympics route or do I want to go play professional football? Because I could train for the next four years and try to make the USA Olympic team for as a decathlete. But I really wasn't good enough as some of these guys at the next level. They were just unbelievable what they could do. And I didn't have the speed. I didn't have the strength that these guys had. And it would have to take a lot of years of training and technique training to get there. So I decided to go play football right away and played arena football. 
So it's kind of like a step below the NFL. Could you, again, did you have a chance to get into the NFL? You know, I had some tryouts with a couple teams uh, in Cleveland and, and Buffalo, and a few other teams were interested. But again, coming from such a small school where we weren't like winning that much, I was doing well, but I was kind of under the radar. And there was a lot of guys from Division One colleges who were, you know, freak athletes that 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 went in the draft so i didn't get drafted i went to some combines at ohio state i was playing you know i was going one-on-one with santonio holmes who was the super bowl mvp a number of years ago and i think rookie of the year and i was at these tryouts i was doing just as good if not better than a lot of the guys who got drafted in the first round but since i was unknown and wasn't as fast i didn't get picked up and um so i played arena football i still achieved my dream of getting paid to do what i love and getting paid to just run around and hit people all day and catch a football, I felt like it, you know, it was amazing. It was this dream come true. But I got injured. I broke, uh, broke my wrist in the second game of the season and uh, finished out the whole season with a broken wrist. Had to have surgery and um, was in a cast for the next six months, sleeping oh. on my sister's couch, recovering. And at this point, you know, my entire life was about being a professional athlete and being able to be paid to play sports. And now the dream was over. It was like, I'm 23 or 24. And I was like, what the hell am I going to do with the rest of my life? I didn't go to school. I could barely read. Uh, I almost flunked out. I, when I went to a private boarding school in eighth grade, they tested me for all of like the reading and writing and math. And I had a second grade reading level when I went to eighth grade. I literally could not read. Were you dyslexic or something? Or? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I still am challenged with it today. Like, with certain things, but I just couldn't, I couldn't focus ever in school. And so I was always so insecure. Like every, every class, you know, the, the teachers would always like call out who wants to read the assignment today. And she would just call he or She would just call out people. And I was just like sweating every day in hopes that they would not call on me. Mm-hmm. And whenever they would, it was like, I would just make a fool of myself because the simplest words I was not able to read uh, out loud, and I would just kind of mumble or skip over them because I was just like, I have no clue. And uh, you know, I'd get laughed at a lot and just made fun of a lot. And it really, fortunately, me... you were a big guy, so you could <laughs> beat anybody up who really laughed at you. Like, well, well, this is what's interesting, and I haven't really talked about this ever, but I'd love to share with you, even though I'm kind of probably going off track now. But that's okay. You, you know, my entire childhood, I was always felt alone and insecure and stupid and ignorant. And uh, I was the youngest of four kids, and my older siblings were just geniuses, brilliant. My brother is a, you know, the number one jazz violinist in the world and just off the charts in school, skipped a couple grades, you know, full ride, everything. Mm. And my sisters are just so intelligent, and uh, you know, their vocabulary is just the next level. And so I always felt you know, like I was kind of like the runt, like no one really cared. And I was always made fun of. I was like six, four when I was 10 years old. So I was just like gangly, skinny, ugly, acne kid, goofy who couldn't read or write or like do anything in school. I just, but it, I sound, it sounds like though there was this bond with your dad though, in terms of yeah. the athletics and it would sound like you knew instinctively this would be the way, not necessarily to impress your dad, but sure. in some ways to get your dad's love. If you couldn't yeah, do yeah. Through, uh, academics, you could exactly. do it through athletics. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess subconsciously, that's kind of what I was probably going through as a child. And what I realized 
is that school, no matter how hard I studied or how hard I tried to read, I just could not remember what I was reading. I would read and read and read one page over and over, and I wouldn't remember what it would, what happened, what the story was or what anything was. And then 30 minutes would go by, and I was just like, all right, I need to go play sports. And it got to the point where I was like, this isn't going to work for me. School and remembering things and studying does not work for me. So I'm going to learn to connect with people on a different level as opposed to trying to impress them on what I know, but I'm going to try to uh, connect with them and let them know how much I care about them. And that's what I started doing in high school. It's like, I pretty much scrapped school. I just like, was like, I'm going to, I cheated on every test in high school because that's the only way I, I would have passed. There was not one test or one homework assignment that I'd not get help on or not cheat on. I became a master at having vision and seeing all the papers around me during testing time and being able to see what people were writing and really figuring out a system for how to put the right answers down but not look too smart. You know what I mean? And like and have it all match. And uh, so I felt always bad because I had to cheat to get by because I would really try to study and like learn, but every time I would actually do it without cheating, I would fail. And um, I was just like, this is the only way I'm going to be able to play sports is to stay in school by cheating. And um, it was interesting, but I learned how to connect with people on a different level and really learn how to communicate with body language, with passion, with love, and with caring about what people were doing in their lives. And I feel like for me, that's really what's allowed me to be you know, get to where I am now. Let me ask you about that though. Like, do you feel you were in some sense artificially connecting with people at that time in order so that they would return the favor in some ways by letting you cheat off of their stuff or like, was this kind of part of your plan or was it just sort of worked out that way? Just sort of, I mean, people didn't even know I was cheating on them. Um, I was just like, I would sit by people during test time and, and I would just have them, like the teacher never saw me. I had a way of like putting my hand over my eyes and just being able to look from the side view <laughs> and see and see what the, the circles were on multiple choice. You know, it, the- it's, it sort of like exemplifies though what I always say about education, which is A, people don't really remember what they've been taught in a class or reading a book. For 45 minutes after a lecture, it's been proven that it's almost gone. 90% of the people don't remember anything that they heard, anything at all they've heard in that lecture. Like, I've given talks where I've asked people, you know, when was Charlemagne born? And like a talk of, let's say, 200 people, not a single person will be right within 500 years. So, <laughs> And this is like taught every single year of school. I don't even remember. I wrote it in my book. I got it. I got it wrong myself. And I could have Googled it. So yeah. it, it just goes to show that, you know, and you mentioned earlier, you wanted to get paid to do what you loved. And that's been a common theme of all the guests I've had on this podcast. Everybody kind of said no at some point and then mm. found out what they loved and got paid for it and hadn't figured out how to get paid for it. Cause it's not easy to get nobody. Nobody says, Oh, do you love this? Okay. We're going to pay you for it. Like you have to work <laughs> for it at that point. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And when I got, um, you know, when I got injured and I was kind of like, Oh shoot, what am I going to do with my life now? I'm 23 or 24 and I've got, you know, however long left to live, but I have no backup plan. I, you know, I don't remember anything from school. I didn't, I don't, I have a sports management degree, but it's like, you know, whatever. I don't want to go work for a team. I really want to have this feeling that I get paid to do, to play all day and to do what I love. And so I was like, I can never go work for someone. So how am I going to learn how to make money when I've never made money before on my own? And, um, <clears throat> that's when everything started to shift for me. You know, I was depressed on my sister's couch and I, right when I got my cast off, the 2008 Olympics happened and I was sleeping on my sister's couch watching the Olympics, depressed, 
that I wasn't in them and I wasn't playing sports anymore. But then one night, there was a sport on at about 3 a.m. that I'd never seen before. The luge. <laughs> exactly. The one sport was, I could do. Yeah, exactly. This was the Summer Olympics, not the Winter Olympics. So there was one night, it was like 3 a.m., and I was just you know, watching the press, and I saw this sport with these guys throwing this ball around and dribbling on a court and like hitting each other, and it looked like soccer with your hands, but physical. And I was like, what? the hell is this sport that I've never seen before? I was so mad that I'd never seen this before because it looked amazing. It was called Team Handball. And so I became obsessed with learning about how to play this game and how to like make the Olympics. I was like, this is my chance. It's not that physical, but it's physical and it's fast. And, and, uh, and so I said, when I make enough money, I'm going to move to uh, New York City. I did some research. New York City had the best team in the country as an amateur club level because there's no professional sport here. And so I said, when I'm when I make enough money, the reason I'm going to make money is so I can move to New York City and learn this sport from the best team in the country, and then go make the Olympics and be on the USA national team. And um, skip a few years, I made you know my millions in Columbus. Um, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a second. And then uh, I was like, all right, I've made enough money. It's time to move to New York and go live the dream and make the USA team. So I moved there, showed up on a practice one day and said, uh, my name's Lewis. I've never played handball before, but I'm going to make the USA national team and go to the Olympics. They laughed their asses off of me. Nine months later, I was on the USA national team playing in Argentina. Wow. So you were in the Olympics in uh, what year? We did not qualify for the Olympics, but I was on the USA team, uh, and playing in an international competition in Argentina um, about a year and a half ago. So but we now let, me, let me ask you this. So handball, like you just broke your wrist. How are you going to – isn't handball kind of like tennis with your hand? It's a different sport. Handball is like – imagine water polo without water on a basketball court or soccer with your hands on a big basketball court. That's kind of what it looks like. So there's okay. two different types of handball. There's a handball where you're familiar with where you hit a ball against a wall, kind of like the Brooklyn-style handball. That's not the sport. This is a sport where you're dribbling, you're passing. It's a bigger ball. Uh, it's kind of like a small soccer ball that you dribble, and you throw it into a goal with a goalie. And whoever, and whoever gets the most points in the game wins. And it's, um, it's a huge sport in Europe, but basically unknown in the United States. And you're still actively involved in the sport, right? I'm still actively involved. I'm in the USA national team pool. So there's a, you know, they have probably like 30 players that they'll choose from that take 16 to tournaments. And uh, we're getting ready for a tournament coming up next month. And then, you know, the Pan Am Games are next year. And then the Olympics are 2016. So they only take one so, so country. You, you went from broken wrist to, to being on the national team for a sport you had never even heard of. This is sort of like how when you got injured in football, you went from scratch <laughs> to suddenly being All-American, de decathlon athlete, and then and then it was just trivial, trivial for you. You became All-American in football right after that. So yeah. what, what are these? Obviously, it's almost like learning, and I've used this analogy before. It's like learning almost like a third language. So mm. once you learn Spanish, it's easy to learn French. So right. what are the kind of... Um, if you were to just take an, some sport and endeavor, and I'm sure this is what we're going to get into with the LinkedIn stuff, but if you were to take some endeavor, what, what are kind of like, the, what's the grammar? Like every endeavor has a grammar to it. And if you learn the rules of the grammar, you can master that language. So w sure. what's like the grammar, the basic elements of grammar of, you know, becoming great at a sport, for instance, for you? Yeah, I think uh, first is the desire and the why. 
So I think first, like there's a lot of people that say, oh, I want to make a million dollars. Uh, I want to like, you know, travel the world, this and that. But if they don't have the why that's strong enough or the desire, the hunger, what, the eye of the tiger, whatever it is you want to call it, um, then they're not going to do the work that's committed, that they're going to be committed to that's going to make it happen. Because obviously it's going to be a lot of work to create any type of amazing result. You know this. So you got to figure out what's, why do you want this so bad? Why do you want to achieve something? And is your desire, are you able to take so much pain that you're going to go through for the next however many months, years to achieving it? Because you're going to have to sacrifice and give something up and feel a lot of pain if you want to feel any pleasure. So for me, I knew that like I had nothing to lose. I was like broke and I wanted to pursue this. I wanted to have this feeling so bad. I couldn't live my life without going for seeing if I can make the Olympics. And I knew that the pain of regretting something by not going after it would hurt so bad for the rest of my life instead of the short-term pain of like sacrificing certain things or moving or having to work my ass off or you know, being in physical pain every day from training was worth it for me to know that at least I gave him my shot. Whether I make the Olympics or not is not, does not the point. It's like the pursuit of it and giving everything I've got and giving my best is what matters to me. So, so, and, so what um, I'm hearing is there, there's, the first. there's, there's a why uh, that is where if you don't have that why, you're going to um, – the, the why basically implies that you're, gonna, you're willing to go through the pain it takes to be yes. great. Like, so to work, yes. to, work, to work four or five hours a day at something is going to be painful. And yep. you're going to fail a lot, like as opposed to a regular job, which just kind of keeps, you know, moving along. You're going to fail a lot on your quest, too. Like you, you on the pole vault, you failed the first two times yeah. on football. You had an injury on, uh, you know, suddenly you had a broken wrist. So yep. all these dreams, you have to be willing to also have some dreams not come true. But then you yep. pivot slightly to the new thing. You're, you're, it sounds like your mind was always thinking of the new way you could take your skills to to success to be an all-american or an olympian or whatever yeah yeah and not be attached to the result not to be attached to how it looks because you know i didn't plan for the injury but then when i had the injury i had to adjust and flex like you said and uh you know be open to it not looking a certain way and you know failing right. so you give up like after your first uh failure as all-american for football <laughs> you just didn't just yeah. give up yeah, yeah. I, I shifted and I was like, okay, well, here's another opportunity is the decathlon. It's going to be hard and painful and six months of grueling training, but I'm going to give it a shot. And, uh, and then I realized, oh, I can come back for another year and do football and see if I can make it again. And funny enough, I actually broke the same three ribs my fifth year, senior year, and I, uh, the, second, the same game, the second game of the season, and I, I missed the next two games. And so I missed two games of scoring touchdowns and getting yards, but then I had a healing and came back and finished the season strong and, and made an All-American with two less than two games. So, because they gave you those bionic ribs at that point. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting. And so, so the next... So now, so now, fast forward to... You're on your sister's couch. Uh, you, your, your athletic career, uh, you know, has been, you know, ruined, but you... you, you came back through handball, but it doesn't sound like you could make millions doing handball, even though you're still yeah. able to achieve your dream of being on the national team and so on. How did you kind of, um, you know, you mentioned your ability to connect with people in high school, and, and that's how you sort of compensated for mm -hmm. kind of a, uh, let's call it a lack of academic ability, but I don't quite yes. believe that. Um, you know, I think, I think there was 
uh, obviously there was intelligence because I think to be a pro athlete, you have to have amazing intelligence. But uh, at the same time, there was probably other issues. But so you're on your sister's couch. How do you decide what to do next? How are you going to yeah. make a living? Yeah, after about six months of just like moping around and being upset and depressed, I, I was like, all right, I get to do something with my life. So what's it going to be? You know, what's, what's my choice going to be? Am I going to be miserable for the rest of my life and you know, commit suicide? I wasn't thinking like this, but you know, a lot of pro athletes get depressed and some commit suicide like Junior Seau. Uh, you know, some of the best athletes in the world, they don't know what to do when it's over. And I would only played one year of like semi-professional football. So it wasn't even like I was like this god or something on the, on the media level. But uh, for me, it was still like hard. You know, my dream was over and I was like, what am I going to do? And um, so what I did is I reached out to people that I really trusted and admired uh, in the business field. And uh, I, I said, here's where I'm at. And I'm not sure what to do. Let's back off for a second on that, because what I want to know is if, you know, you can reach out to somebody, they're not always going to return your call. Like if I call up, you know, Warren Buffett and say, hey, can I pick your brain for a few minutes? He's not going to return my call. He's a busy man. So how did you get people to talk to you? Well, a couple of them were kind of like my friends already that were were mentors kind of like through college um, that I knew. So there were people that I knew already who I would say I'm friends with. So kind of like your first degree of connection, you know, yeah, almost like a LinkedIn first connection. Yeah, people I already knew. One was like the headmaster of my university that was an inventor who invented like the air technology and the Nike shoe and like some other cool things. And he just done a lot of great things in business. And I was like, you know, he, he was a, just a big fan of mine in college and as, a, as an athlete and just really supported me. And so I said, you know, I don't know what to do next. Can you give me any suggestions or advice? And he said, you know... Uh, there's a site called LinkedIn that you should check out. It's kind of like the Facebook for grownups or whatever. You know, this is back in 2008, and he was like, "Why don't you check it out?" I've been hearing about some people getting their jo- getting a job from there and, and things like that. I hear you can get some opportunities, so I recommend just starting there and researching on there and finding where you might want to work or just connecting with people who you find are interesting and ask them questions about how they got to where they are and how they became successful. And so I said, "Screw it! I've got all the time in the world." So I was on my laptop on my sister's couch with one hand typing emails to people that in the sports industry originally because I was like, I'm going to come back still and I'm going to be in sports somehow. So I was reaching out to like the founder of ESPN and, and other, other people at like big sports companies and just emailing them and saying, hey, my name's Lewis. I'm a former pro athlete and uh, I really admire the success you've had in your career and your life. And I would say some specific points based on like their LinkedIn profile and trying to find some mutual ways of connections, mutual interests. And uh, I would just say I would love to, you know, jump on a phone and ask you a few questions about how you got to where you are. Or if they were like in Columbus, Ohio, I would say I'd love to meet you in person and just ask you about it. And I think a lot of, I got a lot of responses back from like big names, uh, from people who were like, you know, big pe- people in the industry. And I think it was because like I played the pro athlete card, like I used to play pro football and this and that. And I think that that gave me kind of like an in, even though I wasn't like an NFL player, you know. So what 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 were some? Can you say some of the names that called you back? <clears throat> I mean, you know, the founder of ESPN, his name is Bill Rasmussen. He's like a big name. Um, sure. There was a, there was a guy named Ben Sterner who was like a, a big sports. He was one of the top sports sponsorships uh, agencies in New York, and uh, he's you know even bigger now. But he's a good friend of mine. He he reached out right away, and other people like that in the sport. There was a lot of like. Agents I was reaching out to, 
um, probably no names you'd recognize, but they were just like successful people in the sports industry. And um, yeah, I was just reaching out to them. A lot of them were just like, yeah, I'll give you a few minutes and talk about my success. You know, I, here's the thing. I didn't ask anyone for advice or ask them for a job or say, can you help me? I just said, I would love to learn about your success and how you got to where you are. And that, that simple question opened the door because everyone wants to talk about their success. And so, um, and I never I think, asked them for advice. I think that's really important, actually, that you, you kind of, in a sense, you gave, even though they were yeah. giving you, like, because they were giving you their story and their history and their advice. The fact that you did this without expectation of, yeah. like, let's say a job offer or a connection or whatever, that's the thing people are on, are, they're on, on guard for. They yeah. don't want to have to give something, but you were just simply asking for their, their story. That's it. I never asked for a job or because I didn't want a job in the first place. I just wanted to know how they became successful, how they got there. And I think that's, you know, that's what happens. A lot of people are reaching out to these influencers and saying, I want a job at your company or can you give me advice or can I be an intern? And I was just like, I want to know why you're so great. And what was the answer from, from most people? I mean, it's, you know, common themes for everyone. Like they worked really hard. They it was like everyone hustled and, and did the unconventional route. Like no one just like graduated school and got an internship and then r rose up in the ranks. I think maybe a couple people, but the people that I talked to, almost everyone was like, you know, in college I realized I wanted to do this thing. And so I like bugged this guy and said, Hey, I'll work for you for free. And then kind of got, they all kind of got like they're in somehow by like hustling and doing something different. One guy was like, I sent packages to people, um, like crazy gifts to people to get meetings. And they just all had like a unique way of connecting with someone or getting their foot in the door in a different way. And that's kind of what's allowed them to rise in the rankings, I guess, in their industry by doing that. And then, so, so where does LinkedIn play in with this? Yeah. So, you know, I was on LinkedIn for like a year for about six hours a day, just reaching out to people and interviewing people and then just building my network. I just wanted to have a network of people that I could reach out to and connect with whenever I needed to, you know, when I, when I wanted something, I guess. But what I realized is that I didn't have anything to offer. I wasn't working anywhere. I didn't have any services or products, but what I started to see is that, um, People, when I would reach out and interview people and I kind of ask them questions about their success, I would always ask, so what's the biggest challenge you have right now or what's the big thing you're looking to achieve? And a lot of them would be like, well, you know, uh, one of the things in our company is we're lo really looking for like a new web team or we're really looking to hire like an HR person or a, a top salesperson or whatever it is. And so I'd always listen really carefully to what it is they really wanted, what they were saying and what they weren't saying. And then I would say, you know what, I just interviewed or talked to like the top sports, you know, PR person last week. I know you got you got your book coming out. I want to connect you guys because I think you can see a good fit here. Or I, I've got the top web, get web guy that I think you should connect with. I just knew everyone. And so all I started doing was connecting people and I'd make email introductions and then their business would grow and they would always come back and thank me. They'd be like, thank you so much. How can I help you? And I'd be like, well, Nothing yet. I'd just love to be able to reach out if I ever have any questions or something like that. And what I started doing there was so, like so. So I just want to I just want to summarize that it was almost like you did uh, what I call permission networking. So you yeah. reached out to one and said, "Can I introduce you to this other guy?" And you reached out to him. Then you introduced the two together. Value was created with still no expectation back, but Never you know that value is created, and that's yeah. the type of value that I do think it, it's almost like. It's like you put that value in the bank and it compounds exponentially for when you actually need it. And I think that's a very important skill that, that most people don't know about. 
Yeah. It, it became a goal of mine to really be like the champion person in every per, in everyone's network. I wanted to be the guy that you could reach out to and say, here's what I'm looking for. Do you know who I can connect with to achieve this? And that's what it was like my goal to know everyone and see who would be a good fit where, like who would match with personality type, experience level, and just put the pieces together for everyone else and like help everyone achieve their goals. And, um, and so what I started doing as opposed to doing all these like one-on-one emails, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to bring everyone together in, in person. And so I started doing these LinkedIn networking events around the country. I did 20 of them in 2009 around mostly around the Midwest. And, um, so what, f- what would these events be like? You would invite like uh, all your friends on LinkedIn to a bar, or yeah, yeah, a bar, a restaurant, or some type of venue. I would I would connect with the venue and say, hey, I want to have like a, a happy hour type of thing for four or five hours on a you know your least busy night. So I'd find out the least busy night was like a Tuesday or Wednesday, and I was like, I'm gonna get three to five hundred people here, and they're gonna buy a lot of food and buy a lot of drinks. Is that cool? So they would all give it to me for free, and um, I started creating these LinkedIn groups. So I had a lot of like connections but i wanted to create these groups in various cities so that i had one specific place to market to so each group i would promote hey we're having an event this week at this time um and the first event i did was in st louis i had 350 people show up and i was just like i had no clue what i was doing i never thrown an event i was 24 i didn't have any business skills or i don't even think i graduated college yet at the time i was still finishing online and, uh, you know, 350 business executives in suits showed up and I made a thousand bucks because I sold like four sponsor tables and I was just blown away by the results people were creating and who they were connecting with and the emails I got afterwards from thanking me from like the introductions and how much money they were making from these events. And they were like, well, you th- when's the next one? You know, throw the wow, next so, one. So not only did you make money, the thousand dollars. But you made 300 vi- 350 valuable connections to you, yeah. but yeah. also then it's like this exponential network. Like they all created value with each other. So that, you know, ultimately would come back to you at some point. Exactly. And it, it has in many times over since then. And I, I got smarter. Each event, I was like, okay, what else can I do to make money? As opposed to selling a few sponsorship tables. I started charging $5 and then $10 then $20 and more people started showing up when, as I would charge higher. And, um, so I was making cash off of sponsorship tables. Then I was making like, you know, a couple thousand dollars at the door from just people entering with cash. And then I was like, you know what? These venues are making a lot of money. I bet if I talk to them, maybe they give me a commission. So I said, Hey, listen, if I get you like $5,000 in sales in this four hour window, will you give me 10% commission on food and, and, and bar sales. And then I was like, if I give you $10,000, we give me 20%. And they're all like, yeah, sure. So I started making money off that. And then I started, then I was like, you know what? Everyone's asking me about how I'm doing this stuff on LinkedIn by connecting people and, you know, optimizing profiles. And so why don't I write a book and then sell this at the event? So I started selling books at the events and, you know, it's just kind of like trying to do everything I could. I did some consulting from people who wanted like personal one-on-one LinkedIn training and uh, made the most of it until I was just kind of like burnt out from like doing these events, and it was just a hustle that I didn't want to do, and I couldn't really scale, so I stopped. And doing was it. this was this all you, just you doing it? All me. I was doing everything: the marketing, the event planning, the you know setup, the breakdown. I was yeah. doing it, doing it all myself because I didn't have enough money to like hire anyone. And so, yeah. so after that, then how did you how did you figure out how to scale this business? Yeah, you know, I realized like I don't want to do these events anymore because it's just 
was kind of exhausting. You know, I'd shake everyone's hand at the door. So it was like 500 people at times. I was talking to, and it's just like everyone would ask questions. So I just got tired. And, um, and I realized I was only making like three, dollars $4,000 in cash, which was a lot of money for me. But I was like, uh, it's not worth it anymore. I'd done 20 of them. I was just like, uh, I don't want to keep doing these. So I, I just feel like I got blessed and I got really, I got, I kind of got, was in the right place at the right time for what happened next. And I met a guy named Joel Calm at an, a conference. You know, I was, I was going to a lot of these like social media blogging conferences because I was in the LinkedIn space writing content and I wrote a book. So I wanted to kind of promote that. And uh, I was going to these events, these big social media events. <clears throat> and Joel Calm was a guy who had written a, a New York Times bestseller and, and made millions through a couple of different websites that I met at one of these events. He wrote a book about Twitter at the time. And I was like, hey, you know, you should really get on LinkedIn. And here's why. I kind of gave him my like 10 second pitch. He was like, interesting. He's like, give me your information and maybe we'll connect. A few months later, he emails me and says, hey, I'm doing this online boot camp about social media. And I've, I'm getting some experts together about Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and blogging. But I don't know anyone else who's talking about LinkedIn besides you from our conversation. So I, what I want you to do is come on and give a 60-minute presentation teaching about LinkedIn, how to build your business, and what people can do to leverage LinkedIn to get traffic and leads and sales. And at the end, I want you to sell a product, and you're going to give me 50% commission on that product, on whatever you sell. And I'm going to get about 500 people on, and uh, we'll see how it goes. And I, I was like... I was like, I hit the jackpot. I was like, I'm in the big, big leagues. Like, this is a New York Times bestseller. I'm just this young punk. I was like 24. And I was like, holy crap, this is like my shot. But I had no clue how to like present or do a presentation or speak. I'd never done a web. I didn't even know what a webinar was. And uh, luckily, I had a friend who had like knew how to put a sales page together and help me with the presentation. And it, it kind of all came together last minute to the time of the webinar. And I was so nervous and freaking out and like trembling in my voice as this presentation started because I saw that there were 500 people on live on this GoToWebinar presentation. And I was like, I have no clue what I'm doing. I don't even have a product. But I'm going to sell this like training that I'm going to deliver in the following week, like this live LinkedIn training. And so at the end of the webinar, you know, I, I ended up getting in the zone and kind of like giving a great presentation at the end of it. But at the end, I shut down like the webinar and opened up my email, and the most beautiful sight in the world was in front of me. Every email line on my screen that I could see said, you've received payment from PayPal. And there were $6,300 in my account within you know, minutes after this presentation, and I was freaking out. I never really made that much money in my life in that amount of time. And was screaming. I was like running around the house. I was throwing the cat. I was like doing whatever. I was just like freaking out. And I said, this is it. I was like, webinars is the way I'm going to get rich. And I could do this every single day for the rest of my life if we we'll make $6,300 in an hour. And for the next three and a half years, that's pretty much what I did. Wow. So every day, and the audience never depleted? Like every day you were giving webinars on how to <clears throat> use LinkedIn? It wasn't every day. It was, a, you know, it was probably like one, once a week and then it was two a week and then three a week. And I was always finding ways to generate new leads. So I had a big email list from LinkedIn that I built. So I started promoting it to my list first. But then it was like, okay, I kind of I overdid it with my list. So I said, how can I get more people in front of this? So I started partnering with other people and they would promote it to their audiences. And I would teach them for free how to like build their business on LinkedIn and then sell an advanced training at the end. 
and make them a lot of money. So they and when you say it. build their business on LinkedIn, what does that mean? Mostly, I, w- I could teach like small business owners how to generate more leads, more exposure, more referrals, more traffic, more sales. Um, you know, get PR, get press. I can teach them a lot of these different things about building their business. Wow. So, so okay. So you did that for three years. How many? How many think you did? Like a couple hundred. I think I did around seven hundred webinars. Wow. In about three and a half or four years, and then again, it kind of like I've what was the most you made on any one webinar? Oh man, uh, I think we did like sixty thousand dollars in an hour. Wow. One time, yeah. I mean, but then it was just like doing them every couple of days, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was unreal. I was I was literally like living the dream because I was a broke kid who didn't know how to make money. And then for two years, I spent hustling, just giving and giving and giving and connecting with people and just trying to add as much value as possible, but not really knowing how to make money except for these little events. And then, you know, this one webinar changed the way I thought about everything. I was like, oh my God, I can leverage being in my underwear anywhere in the world with my laptop and get thousands of people on and actually serve them and give a lot of value to them. And then for those that want more information, they can buy a product that I have. And I was just like blown away at what, what I could create. So what, what, what was the product that you – so this is like an upsell. What was the product that you upsold yeah. from the webinar? At that time, it was like $150 like advanced LinkedIn training, like live training that I did. Because I didn't even have a pro- – I didn't know how to create a membership site or a product or anything. So I just said, okay – Here's a PayPal link, like sign up for this. And next week I'll tell you when I'm going to do this thing live where you can come on for a few hours and I'll teach you more. That's all I did. So it's kind of like, you know, a live presentation again. And, and then I became obsessed with learning about how to do webinars. Like I was just consuming every type of product and book and interviewing people who had done webinars before and just learning how to make the best of them and how to make them a great experience for people and really add value. And so people got results instantly and um yeah you know after doing a few hundred of them you get pretty good at it and uh started teaching people how to make money with webinars and selling products before they even had one and started making a lot of people a lot of money by teaching that as well wow that's great so essentially people were paying like let's call it a hundred dollars on average between you know all your different products and but they would then in turn use the advice to make a thousand dollars or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, a lot, a lot more. Yeah, I mean, like I'd have students that never done a webinar before, who didn't have a product, who who would throw it together in a day, a presentation. Because I like to take have people do it really fast. Like, okay, let's create this presentation. You're going to create the information you know, and then you're going to sell something you don't have, but it's going to force you to create that in the next week. And like you know, people in the first first couple of people I did it with, like one woman made like twenty two thousand dollars in an hour doing a presentation that she just put together that day. How for did she, she distribute have. her webinar? So like you have this huge list, but yeah, how did yeah. someone new distribute? <clears throat> Most people have an email list, but she had like an email list of like six thousand people, and so she got a few hundred people on, and they bought from her. There was an acupuncturist I just supported um, two weeks ago, actually, who had about a two hundred fifty person list. And she wants to, she's making six figures as an acupuncturist and she wants to bring in extra streams of income. I said, you've got to teach people, acupuncturists, how to make six figures because a lot of them are struggling. They have no clue how to run a business. They just learned how to heal people. They have no clue what to do next, how to run the office, how to do the insurance billing, how to do everything else that's involved. And so I told her exactly what to do. 
And she had a small list, about 250, and she ran Facebook ads for about a week. I think she spent 200 bucks on them to just targeting acupuncturists for a live webinar. And she had 75 people on, and she made uh, over $7,000 from selling a $199 product that she didn't have yet that she delivered to them the following week. So from and beginning to end, like how long did it take her? I mean, probably like a week, you know, of like, wow. I, I said, you need to, I said, schedule the time next week for a webinar that you're going to run. And so she scheduled a time and like sent it out to her list. So she had committed to that time. I said, okay, now you get to create the presentation in this week and you get to run Facebook ads to generate some more leads and you're not going to get a ton of people on, but if you can get, you know, a couple hundred, that'd be amazing. And uh, so she, she posted like a couple hundred bucks of Facebook ads and just targeted acupuncturists to a simple landing page with an opt-in for a webinar. And, uh, and then during that week when she was promoting this webinar, she was like, okay, putting the slides together. They weren't pretty at all, but she put slides together to kind of teach. She had the content down though. She's like, she's an expert, so she could teach this stuff easily. It's just a matter of putting the slides together and understanding the technology. And then she had a PayPal link that she sent people to at the end. She didn't even have a sales page. She said, here's a PayPal link. It's $199. And in a week, I will send you the information. Um, but the so, content. So she was, did the, the webinar itself was free, but at the end was yes. uh, the upsell of one hundred ninety nine dollars, and she's going to send basically everything she talked about plus extra stuff. Yeah, but she basically had like all the documents for insurance billing, the documents for getting new clients, how to you know, have your office set up. She talked about strategies for generating new referrals, like. She had a whole module of videos that she created after that. Um, and all she had to do was really have an outline of what she was going to give them. So in the, the pitch at the end of the webinar, the free webinar, she was like, okay, here's what you're going to get next week. So she had an outline of what she was going to create. But if no one buys it, then maybe they didn't want it. And so there's no point in creating something until people actually want it. So I always teach sell something first. And that way, if no one buys it, you don't have to spend six months of creating a product that no one's going to buy anyways. That's really interesting. So essentially, I mean, I, I definitely feel this is the direction the economy is going. Like the entire middle layer of middle management, middle class, you know, middle manufacturing, all of this is going away in the United States. It's all yeah. being globalized, technologized, whatever you want to call it. And people have to learn how to do exactly what you're teaching, which is how to be this sort of solopreneur, you know, in order to how to build a list, how to sell to that list, how to do what you're passionate about. And then you just gave very good advice, which is then you create the product when you know there's demand. So many people, I mean, I get pitched every day businesses like, don't you think this is a great idea? And I don't know. Do you have any customers yet? Like exactly. That, most most businesses pivot three or four times before they really settle on their final products. And yeah. so it's really interesting to take the approach to get the customers and the sales before the product. So how yeah. much did, do you make when you uh, you know teach someone how to do a webinar like this? Uh, you know, I I've got a, a an online academy called School of Greatness Academy where uh, there's members paying me every quarter a fee to be a part of this community where I'm teaching them something new each month, giving them resources and uh, building a community and accountability for them to achieve their goals. So for that specific thing, uh, you know, it's $399 a quarter uh, paid residually. And where but, can uh, people find that? What's the URL for that? Yeah, that's just schoolofgreatness.com or lewishouse.com. Uh, if you scroll down on the homepage, you'll see uh, more about the School of Greatness Academy. 
And uh, yeah, it's just for entrepreneurs that really want to increase their business and their lifestyle. I like but how I'm, you say it's just for entrepreneurs. <laughs> You're trying to make it a little, it's not for everybody. It's like I'm kind of a marketing technique there. <laughs> well, I've got an application process. I've turned down a lot of people that want to pay me, actually. We've had well over 500 people apply. Uh, I only have 110 members in there. I've, I've turned down a lot of people. So there's a, a very detailed application and there's an initiation phase. I'm doing something that no one's ever done before with an online you know, membership site or platform, I believe, because there's an initiation phase where uh, I don't know if I want to give it away, but unless people are actually in it, but if they don't achieve something that I have them do in the first month, then I remove them for life. And so I don't care about their money. I care about them achieving greatness in their life. And if they're not willing to commit to what they're set out to do, then they're not going to be of service to the other people in the community who are committed to creating amazing results in their life. And I don't want those cancers in the group. So there's a lot of people that have tried to pay me and that constantly want to hire me for consulting one-on-one. And it's just not worth it for me unless people are really committed to taking the action to achieving amazing results. I, I agree with that. So what's an example uh, thing that you've had people do that they failed to do? Well, um, each month is different for people when they join. But for the first month, uh, for a lot of my initial members, I said, you need to come up with a goal, uh, a, a huge goal that you wanted to achieve all last year. And you get to achieve that in the next 30 days. And um, I said, make a goal that you know you can achieve. It'll be a huge stretch, but you know you can achieve it. And um, don't create a goal that you want to achieve, but you know is impossible or you just can't create in 30 days. So a lot of people set these big goals. Like one guy was like, okay, I want to make $20,000 and doing this side gig thing. And I just never put the time and energy into doing it. Uh, Another person was like, I want to get a TEDx talk. Um, But I've been putting it off to like do the work. You know, people had all these different goals. And a lot of people achieve their goals. And what it does is it sets them up for like momentum, sets them up for really like seeing, oh my God, I just made 20 grand from being in this thing for one month because someone held me accountable of the fear of being, not being in this anymore if I do not achieve it. And the fear of losing out on this amazing community of successful entrepreneurs who are like so supportive and achieving great results as well. So it's basically like a mastermind, a support group, an accountability group. But I'm just like, I don't put up with anyone's BS. Like if you're not going to serve the community and be of service to yourself first, then don't just be in here to like comment and make, you know, post fun stuff or whatever and be be whatever. Like I'm here for people to get results, not for people to like just only love each other. So so describe so you have a lot of things going on obviously so you have the schoolofgreatness.com or lewishouse.com you also have your podcast which is called the school of greatness and we're we're neck and neck now on iTunes <laughs> So yeah. having you on here, maybe we'll, we'll, you know, catapult me to the front. Exactly. And, uh, uh, what else are you working on? Like what's, what's yeah. Lewis Howe's life like right now? What's the snapshot? You know, uh, it's fun. I'm always working on a few different things. I'm an advisor for a number of different companies, uh, uh, an app called Overnear that's starting to take off. I'm an advisor there and some other mobile companies. I'm, uh, I'm writing a book on greatness that's in the early stages. And But really, this, the goal for me is to live the exact life I want to live every single moment of every day and pursue the things that I love. So, so I'm, pursu- so I'm pursuing handball. I'm pursuing books. I'm pursuing my podcast and really just trying to do stuff that I think is fun. 
And so, um, so, so yeah. it's still it's still the uh, the the what you started out with when you started playing football. <laughs> you wanted to get paid money for doing what you love, and you're exactly. still doing that. Like you're doing yeah, exactly. the exact same thing. So that's, exactly. that's really great. And you've just kind of broadened what that is. You've, you've found these things from I, – I often find that people have to look back to like high school or even younger. What were these little tiny things inside of you that mm-hmm. you enjoyed doing, whether it was uh, playing poker or uh, looking at the stock market pages or for you it was athletics and connecting people. And these mm-hmm. are the things that you actually could have a, a enough passion for to put in the work to, to figure out how to make money. You had all these new twists on how to make money using LinkedIn. Yeah, and I, I think it's like fun now to find ways to like serve people and serve the world and also make money around being of service and adding value. And I, re- I really believe that like we should all be able to make as much money as we want to by doing the things we love. And I think you know, just going off of you and your book, you know, once I choose myself and what I'm following my bliss, it's like when I show up in a way that's passionate and loving and full of energy and joy, then I should get paid and rewarded for that because so many people aren't showing up that way. And uh, I think there's a way for anyone to, to learn how to make money and have like an amazing – all their needs met by being their best self. I, everyone, I agree. You know, a lot of people are not showing up that way, but, but more and more are going to have to in this economy. Yes. It's, it, there's, there's no choice, and I think the earlier you start, the better. Yes, I agree. And I think you know your book and your message is – amazing and inspiring and has served so many people and that's why you know you continue to make money around this message and and everything you do everything you touch turns to gold because you're teaching people what they really need to hear well thanks lewis and and again lewishouse.com and the school of greatness podcast everyone should listen to it. it's a great podcast uh you're on the it. two episodes that i was on, so. <laughs> exactly um who are some who are some of your other guests uh, you know, I've had Tim Ferriss, Robert Greene. I've, I, I try to get really different guests. I've had Olympic gold medalist, uh, the w- world's greatest athlete named Brian Clay, Olympic gold medalist gymnast uh, Sean Johnson. I've had the yeah. world's fittest man alive. His name is Graham Holmberg. He won the CrossFit Games. I've had a lot of interesting professors, no more New York Times bestselling authors, uh, sleep experts, entrepreneur experts, uh, visualization coaches. Like I just really try to find people who are – amazing at what they do in all walks of life and uh, share their story and their message. Well, that's really great. So, so Lewis, thanks for coming on my podcast. I know you're busy with your own podcast, but you, <laughs> you, you made the leap over here. Yes. So I really appreciate it. And these were valuable lessons for me. I'm going to start putting some of these principles into practice myself. So again, we can it. find you at lewishouse.com. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for all you do, James. I appreciate you. Thank you. So, James, what were your thoughts on the interview as far as uh, what's maybe the one thing that you didn't get to ask him that you really wanted to or the one takeaway that really stood out above what we kind of talked about pre-interview? You know, what was interesting to me was just totally superficially, uh, I didn't I've never really thought that much of LinkedIn I've never thought about it one way or the other. Like I have a LinkedIn account. I've never really pursued it. Um, you know, I, I've been mostly a Facebook, Twitter type of user. Uh, but I was really amazed how Lewis used LinkedIn to build an astonishing career out of scratch, a career that has never existed before he created and dominated. And so 
that's going to happen every single day. All the time, new tools are being developed. New social networks are being made. You're not always going to make the new tools. You're not always going to be the next person who makes the next LinkedIn. But you can use these tools to kind of combine them, combined with your own skill set, and really create a career out of them. And this is, you know, my goal always is what will bring freedom in my life? And freedom doesn't necessarily mean financial freedom, although it could. It also means emotional freedom. It means physical freedom where I'm healthy and so on. And Lewis really found a way to bring freedom into his life when he was at his lowest point. And, you know, it's always very important to know that your lowest point can also be a solid base by which you could move forward from. And, and I think Lewis did that very successfully. I learned from his example. Yeah, I'll second that. And, you know, um, a couple of points that I took away as well that relate to what you were just saying was, you know, he kind of discovered this uh, loophole, right? So you got this young 20-something-year-old kid that's organizing these LinkedIn events in his uh, hometown, essentially. He figured out how to monetize it. But more than that, he became kind of the go-to guy. He became the connector. He created essentially a product out of nothing, and then he – you know, via his network, he met this other guy. He learned about the webinar. Now he had scale. And that gave him more freedom with his time because, you know, he was saying that he got burned out. And, and that's understandable. You're shaking, you know, 500 people's hands, strangers, essentially. And, uh, you know, you're throwing these big events. And he realized the power of technology and the power of the Internet for doing these webinars. But more important than that, and, and it ties into the second thing where you say it's not about the money. I love the idea that he gives people these kind of 30-day goals and they're different for joining his group. Now, these are people that are paying him and he has no problem throwing them out and banning them forever if they don't take action. How important is that, James? Well, you know, it's, it's important for two reasons. One is it holds them accountable. And I think if people realize that there are penalties in their lives, they're much more likely to get something Done. It's sort of like uh, AJ Jacobs, who I had on the podcast a, a few weeks ago. Um, when he was doing his um, book, Drop Dead Healthy, he wanted to lose weight. So he gave a friend of his, I forget the exact amount, but let's say it was $10,000. He gave a friend of his a check for $10,000 made out to the Ku Klux Klan. And he said, if I don't lose <laughs> this weight in this amount of time, you have to mail that check. And so that gave him a strong incentive to lose the weight, you know, because he's obviously not a fan of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. And uh, uh, so so he did lose the weight and the check didn't get sent and, and all was good. So I think holding people accountable and having them have consequences is, is very important. But there's also a marketing aspect, too, which is to say, look, not everybody is good enough to join my club. Prove that you're join that you're good enough. And that's actually going to encourage people to really. All right, James, it's now time for the mailbag. It's the Ask Altature segment. Uh, we encourage people, as always, to send back their feedback. You can send it to feedback at stansburyradio.com. James, you have a nifty little site set up that is ask.jamesaltucher.com. It's a cool little, like, forum. Did you do that yourself, by the way? Uh, no, it's a WordPress plugin. But um, And then I have an assistant who, who set it all up. Uh, which shows you how far my computer science education has taken me. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, but they, they've been very good. Yeah, they have. Okay, so I've uh, plucked three off. Um, you don't know what they are, so I'm just going to throw them at you. You ready? Yes. All right, email number one. Is getting an MBA 
a waste of time? If so, what do you suggest as an alternate? An, an MBA is totally a waste of time, and it's a waste of money. You, you, you can't, the, the, two, you know, the two most important things you don't want to waste, time and money, that's what the MBA helps you to waste. So why is it a waste of time? It's because those two years that would have ta- you would have taken to get the MBA, you could have been building businesses. You could have been doing what Lewis Howes did, which is build your, build your network. Uh, you could have been learning new technologies that uh, the business school is not up to. I mean, the same people are teaching in the business school now that taught 10, 20, 30 years ago even in some cases. So these are people who are not up to date as to what was built yesterday. Uh, so they won't know the latest business skills and techniques that are out there. So completely a waste of time, not the best way to build a network because you should be out there working for startups or starting businesses yourself, building your network. So again, waste of time and money. All right, second uh, ask out that your email, should I change my name? Let me give you a little bit of background on this. So this question comes from a 27-year-old man. He's originally from the Ukraine and his name is Igor. Um, He now lives in the United States, has for a while. He thinks it would be easier to meet American women because um, I guess he gets some laughs and stuff like that because it's, I guess, one of those names that generates that type of stereotype. Uh, Would you suggest he changes his name? Igor, please don't change your name. You know, uh, we're all, you know, we all have to play the hand that we're dealt with. And, uh, you know, I've been dealt with, you know, glasses, braces, acne, you know, wild hair. It wasn't really pleasant for me meeting girls when I was in high school or college or heck, even now if I was if I was single. Um, but you learn how to work what you have and you work it the best way you can. So Igor implies to me someone who comes from another part of the world potentially. So potentially you could be a world traveler. For whatever reason, I have a stereotype of someone who's very smart. So there's lots of different ways you can play the hand you're dealt with. But ultimately, you aren't your name. You're, you aren't your name. You aren't your address. You aren't the number of dollar bills you have in the bank. You aren't even how you look, although that's often how people will judge you. But what you are is a person deep inside that needs to be cultivated, that needs to be brought out, that needs to be brought to the forefront. And it's only the people who appreciate this deep core inside of you that you would want to be with anyway. So let them get past all of these hurdles and prove, prove that they let them prove that they should join your club. So keep the name. Love it. Great advice. I agree 100%. It makes you unique. Um, okay. The third email for your ask out to your segment is should I file for a patent before manufacturing and selling? And I know you've written extensively about this type of thing. Fire away. So don't file a patent yet. Make sure there's customers and an audience for what you're doing. Everybody tells me, oh, I have all these ideas. Should I get a lawyer? This is the fastest way to go out of business. You don't even know if you have anybody interested in what you're doing. You don't even know if, you're, if you've created something interesting. And a patent is expensive. And not only that, what are you going to do later? Sue somebody? Like it takes $100 million to sue somebody. So the best thing is find out if you have customers for what you're doing. Then Maybe you can either patent or maybe you could team up with somebody who's going to license from you or they're going to do, you know, pay you for the technology that you've developed or for the customer base you've built. You know, to some extent, and it depends a little bit on what you've developed. But in, the, in 99% of cases, I would say filing for a patent is the last thing you should do. Get customer validation first. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I have a book to recommend. Um, it's called Ready, Fire, Aim by Michael Masterson. And it's a fantastic book on why you should learn uh, to sell the product that you're trying to sell, even if you don't have a product yet. Just like um, Lewis Howell said with his webinar, it forced people that he kind of takes underneath his wing that pay him to throw out a webinar of a product that's not even created yet because why would you waste your time doing all that if nobody even wants to buy it? So that's excellent advice, James. Now, James, you're releasing another podcast on Friday of this week. Why don't you tease your listeners about it a little bit? Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited about this upcoming podcast for Friday. Uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer, uh, he's written 41 books on the topic of self-reliance. Everybody needs to hear what this guy has to say on my podcast. It's basically about, you know, how you find, you know, what you're passionate about, how you find that burning ambition you have, how you take care of yourself spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. I, I felt while I was listening to him, you know, obviously he's the original choose yourself uh, author. I mean, his first book was in the 70s. He sold 100 million copies of his books. Uh, you know, one of the best-selling authors of all time. So I really can't recommend listening to him enough. Uh, I'm, I'm very, I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to the to my own podcast. So I'm very, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't wait to either. I've actually read some of his books, and um, man, I think the guy just has a great message. To, and and uh, we, we talk about it. We talk about his latest book, which is coming out on February 27th. And that book, uh, it's called I Can See Clearly Now. It's his most autobiographical of books, and he talks about. You know, why now? Why write this, this sort of autobiographical book now? It's, it's very interesting to listen to. That's awesome. Um, all right, so you've got the uh, Stansbury Society that you'll be at, and if any of your listeners want to uh, check it out, they can go to stansburytickets.com. That's S-T-A-N-S-B-E-R-R-Y, tickets.com. It'll kind of lay out exactly what's going on. You can meet James in person. Um, James, I'm looking forward to the uh, Wayne Dyer interview. Any parting thoughts for your audience? Well, I would just, you know, I'd be happy if people wrote me, you know, at james at stansburyradio.com and tell me what you're getting out of these podcasts, what parts you like, what parts you don't like. And, you know, this this podcast is really to help people. And I want to see, you know, how I can best help the, the listeners here. All right, James, that's the show this week. We certainly appreciate it and appreciate everything that everybody does for us. Uh, we value all of our listeners. James, have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Aaron. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Stansberry Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique, and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.